This is an ABC podcast. In 1841, Australia's very first book for children was published. It was called A Mother's Offering to Her Children. But the author's identity was kept secret. She was simply described as a lady long resident in New South Wales. For more than a century, the identity of this lady was the subject of much speculation. And then in 1980, she was given a name by a biographer. She was Charlotte Waring Atkinson. We know much more of Charlotte's life story now because two of her descendants are also writers. Two sisters, Belinda Morell and Kate Forsyth. So Kate and Belinda went in search of the true story of their great-great-great-great-grandmother. And they've written a book on her life called Searching for Charlotte. Kate Forsyth has been on Conversations many times before, talking about the true stories behind the old fairy tales and folk tales that were given as children, and about the terrible ordeal of her early life that drew her into that strange kingdom of stories. And it turned out that the life of her ancestor, Charlotte, was as wild and turbulent and full of incident as anything else Kate has written about in the past. Hello, Kate. Hello, Richard. Were you aware as a child that this woman, Charlotte, was your ancestor? Yes, we were absolutely aware of it. We were brought up on stories about her. Um, I come from a family of wonderful storytellers and when we were children, we would often go and stay with my grandmother and my grandfather and we would drive down to the southern highlands and we would drive along the old rutted road out to Oldbury, which is the house where Charlotte lived with her husband and children. And it was hidden behind a hedge of thorns and we would peer through <laughs> and look at this beautiful sandstone. <laughs> I'm just we laughing, I'm just laughing because this is like, it's almost like it was made for Kate Forsyth land in a exactly. way, wasn't it? Exactly. Mm. It was just like a fairy tale. It was a very romantic story, full of drama, full of tragedy. And it's a story of, you know, the triumph of the human spirit against adversity. And so, of course, of course it drew me in. And my sister, we were completely fascinated with this story about our ancestor. We did not know that no one else knew who she was. When Marcy Muir, her biographer, sold the longest mystery in Australian literature, I can remember my grandfather saying to us, oh, they should have just asked us. <laughs> we always knew. And given that you were told this wild and romantic and slightly terrifying story about your ancestor, was there a part of you as you grew older that went, mm, well, that's a nice story, but can it possibly be true? Yes, that's exactly what happened. When we were young, Belinda and I adored these stories and were always begging to hear more stories about the family. And in our imagination, we, we romanticised them, you know. It was like a fairy tale, and except that it had our ancestors in it. But once I reached my cynical teens, yes. I began to doubt the veracity of these tales. I'd sometimes mentally roll my eyes going, oh, yes, as if that's, that's been so exaggerated and embellished. And so I thought this old history was, of course, glamorised. And that, I think, was one of the most astonishing things about this journey that my sister and I travelled on over the past three years. We set out to find if there was any kernels of truth in these old romantic stories. And what we discovered was actually far more powerful, far more real, far more 
astonishing than we could ever have imagined. Your sister's also a best-selling author, children's author. When you set out to find her story, was it like she was calling to you from across the centuries or was it more like she was hiding from you when you went to, you were playing hide-and-seek to find her? I think that is actually a fascinating question, Richard, and I have to say it was as if she was calling us. Again and again we made the most extraordinary serendipitous discoveries and it almost felt as if Charlotte was guiding us, was having the page fall open at the right moment. Well, dare I say it left you a trail of breadcrumbs to oh, follow. That's my line, Richard. <laughs> that's what I like to say. She left us a trail of breadcrumbs into the dark, tangled forest, forest. of her life. <laughs> well, what, what sources could you draw on to fill in the details of her true story? Well, luckily for us, Charlotte Waring Atkinson came from a literate family and so... There were archives. The Mitchell Library in Sydney and the National Library both have extraordinarily rich archives of her work. There was a um, shipboard journal, for example, that Charlotte wrote on her journey out from England to Australia in 1826. And my sister Belinda transcribed it, which was an astonishing task because the handwriting is very old, very faded and almost almost illegible, and so it took her hours and hours to transcribe this old journal. There is, of course, the first editions of Charlotte's work, A Mother's Offering to Her Children by a lady long resident in New South Wales. The Mitchell Library has a beautiful first edition copy that actually has a drawing by Charlotte in the front page and then it is signed coyly, the author. (laughs) So she maintained her anonymity even when... Signing (laughs) her first edition copies. So you and your sister and your teenage daughters went on a journey to London to find her origins. Where do do we trace her origins in London? Well, Charlotte was born in London in 1796. Right, Um, so it's, what, seven years after the French Revolution? Is this Jane Austen? No, it's not Jane Austen's time, is it? It's the Bronte era, isn't it? In actual fact, um, Charlotte Waring Atkinson was born almost exactly between Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters. And so she's very much of their generation. Old enough to have read Jane Austen, not old enough to have read the Charlotte Bronte. And, And whereabouts in London did she spend her earliest years? Where did she grow up? I mean, she grew up in Marylebone, which I know is not how you pronounce it, so you're going to have to correct me, Richard. Well, as it happened... Marylebone. I I actually lived in that part of London during a a wonderful... (laughs) Well, I won't say it's wonderful, but a a brief recession in Britain in the early 90s meant that apartments there in Wimpole Street could be affordable in Marylebone, and I was told by my snooty neighbours to call it Marylebone, but... Marylebone. But the cheeky... Cockney chappies called it Marleybone, which is, is a bit more sing-song, I think, in the year, isn't yes, it? Yes, I think I like that one better, Marleybone. M- Marleybone, Marleybone, Marleybone. So, <laughs> so what was Marleybone like in, in those years? Well, we now think of it as being the heart of London, mm. you know. Uh, w1. A huge, bustling, sophisticated, modern city. But in those days it was practically countryside. You know, there were fields and there were sheep in the fields and, you know, there would have been probably muddy tracks to walk wow. on. I know. It's amazing. It's just near Regent Street and the BBC. It's, that's, yeah. a, that's so central now. Right, and so that was, that, was it nonetheless a posh part of London in those days? Yes, it was a very posh part of London. Um, Charlotte was born into a genteel family of private means. She was brought up with a fair amount of luxury. Her 
father, Albert Waring, he collected exotic animals. When we were children, we were told that he that he had the largest private zoo in the world. Wow. Which I think was a little embellished. <laughs> Still, having a private zoo in Melbourne, that's just <laughs> blowing my mind just quietly. Uh, wow. So, you know, we always used to imagine that he had, I don't know, um, pet tigers and monkeys and parrots, but it probably wasn't quite so exotic. <laughs> just the odd rhino or two grazing in the paddock outside. Exactly. No doubt. So, so, so she grew up what, in this marvellous household by the sound of things, then wealthy, comfortable and bohemian. Exactly right. But sometime when she was a, a girl, the family lost all of their wealth, most probably during the the wars with Napoleon and, you know, all the dreadful upheavals that happened. A lot of people lost their fortunes in that time. Um, and so at the age of 15, she had to go out and start earning her living as a governess. And so she went from this, you know, very comfortable, privileged lifestyle to being a shadow on the edges of other people's lives. You know, we know from the work of writers like Jane Austen and the Bonte sisters how how awful life as a governess must be. And my heart just goes out to her, imagining her having to go and work and help raise other people's children and not have a home of her own at such a young and vulnerable age. When we travelled to the UK, my daughter was only 15 years old and I, I couldn't bear the thought of her having to go out and work as a governess. She's just on that verge of, you know, womanhood. Yeah. Mm. How do you picture your ancestor, Charlotte, at the age of 15? What did, she, what did she look like when she goes out to work as a governess? Well, she was very small. She was tiny. She was only a little over five foot tall. She was known to, I think she looks a lot like me, actually. She had dark curly hair, um, strongly marked brows and um, dark, fine eyes. And this is all quotes about her. This tiny young woman going out and working for her living. And she pretty much worked for her living for the next 15 years. She was extremely highly educated and she'd been trained in drawing and painting by John Glover. Um, the John Glover? The John Glover. And her art is exquisite. We have quite a bit of the art in the book. So t having taken on this job as a governess, this dispiriting for her work as a, as a governess at the age of 15, does that explain why she suddenly is prepared to pull up sticks and get on a boat and go to the far-flung colony of New South Wales? Absolutely. So we know, and we were told this as children growing up, that when she saw the advertisement for the governess in the Times, it didn't say where the job was. It simply <laughs> said, governess wanted, and I know, and it was offering £100 a year which is about four times as much what Charlotte Bronte earned when she was working as a governess. It was a princely sum. And when Charlotte turned up to the interview at the Grand London Hotel, there were 24 other governesses all sitting in a row. And I like to imagine them in their buttoned-up blouses and their buttoned-up boots, all very prim and proper. And one by one they went into the interview and one by one they came out saying, that is impossible, I could never do that. <laughs> and Charlotte said to herself, what do I have to do to get my £100 a year? <laughs> and when she went in to have her mm. interview, of course, she discovered it was as a governess to the Hannibal Hawkins MacArthur family who lived in the far-off colony of Sydney, New now, South Wales. Is this the MacArthur family of Parramatta? Yes, this is the MacArthur oh, family right. of Parramatta. So Hannibal Hawkins MacArthur was John MacArthur's nephew. 
Right, and he had taken over the management of the estate at Parramatta? Um, he had his own farm, which was called The Vineyard, and he, he was actually married to the daughter of Sir Philip King, who was one of the early governors of the colonies. So, so presumably at some point during this job interview, they, 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 they came clean and said, there is one thing, you will have to go to New South Wales. Exactly, and that time it was, it was a long and dangerous journey and there were all sorts of perils along the way, you know, shipwrecks and storms and mutinies and as we well know from our Australian history. So Charlotte said, yes, I will take the job, but I must travel first class. And I love that little family detail. Yeah, whatever, whatever first class is on a wooden boat across all the oceans of the world. I think it meant that you've got a bed. Right. Oh, mm. well, that's nice for her. So, so she gets on board a ship. Yes. Uh, and she has a journal and this is what she, she writes about this well, time? according to our family history, when she was waiting on the Cumberland and she was about to set sail from England for the very first time, the first thing that she did is she bent down and she picked up a small brown pebble off the banks of the River Thames. She wanted to take a little piece of England with her and it became a kind of a, a talisman for her. She'd put her hand in her pocket and rub this small brown pebble and it would remind her where she'd come from and why she was making this, this long and dangerous journey. Charlotte wanted to live a self-determined life. She wanted to make a life where she was the mistress of her own actions. And that is a quote from Charlotte herself. That was why she set out to be a governess in the colonies. Now, as she boarded the Cumberland, a handsome young man came up the gangplank and he tipped his hat to her, which in those days was as good as a wink. Was that a bit risque, was it, it to was, tip uh, one's hat? It, it was indeed a bit <laughs> risque because right. I had not yet been formally introduced oh, to Richard. Right, I see. And his name was James Atkinson, and James Atkinson was a, a wealthy young settler who had just been given a large grant in the southern highlands of New South Wales. So this is around where uh, Berrimer, Mittagong, that part of New South Wales yes, is, between it, Sydney and Canberra. Exactly. In it's around Sutton Forest. Right. So she met him on board... The Cumberland. She met him on board. Now, again, in our family old history, uh, there was a great storm at sea and Charlotte was swept off her feet and dragged down by the weight of her, her great skirts. And James Atkinson leapt forward and dragged her from the foaming ocean and saved her life. And then he wrapped his plaid cloak about her and the next morning he proposed to her. Is that true? Did that actually happen? I know. Well, the, we always thought this was a lovely romanticised story, but when Belinda was transcribing Charlotte's onboard journal, she describes this scene and she describes the plaid cloak and he, he, he actually wraps her in it twice on that journey. It's a mark of kind of tender attention, keeping her warm. And sorry, sorry, Kate, he saved her life. Mm. He saved her from drowning. Yes. On board this ship being pitched backwards and forwards on the waves, saved her from drowning during a storm at sea. That's extraordinary. I know. And then he proposed to her. They'd only known each other three weeks. It caused this extraordinary scandal that this wealthy young man was marrying the governess and they'd only known each other for three weeks. Everyone thought she was, you know, she'd done well for herself. But... First of all, we found the evidence in the chipboard journal that this story was, was true. And then 
Later, Belinda and I found, lost and forgotten in the archives of the Mitchell Library, one of Charlotte's own sketchbooks, and she draws a picture of herself wrapped in this plaid cloak of this beautiful picture of herself. And when we found it, Belinda just, she couldn't believe it. She was shrieking, oh, my God, look, it's the plaid cloak. And... All the HSE students in the Mitchell Library studying for their exams. Everyone <laughs> looks up. We get the shh. Linda and I were so tremendously excited because here was proof that the old story that we grew up on, the one that we'd begun to think had been most romanticised and embellished, was actually true. So they're engaged. They arrive in Sydney town, as it was, mm. and this is, what, 18... 1826. 1826, right. So this is still very early New South Wales. Yeah. How long did they have to wait before they could get married? Well, Charlotte um, worked out her term as, as a governess and so she worked for the MacArthur's in Parramatta for about a year. And what did they think of that, her taking off to get married after just one year as governess? Well, you know, we were always told that they weren't very happy about it at all, but in actual fact there are many letters written to Charlotte by her her young charges, um, you know, who loved her and they, you know, they exchanged letters for the rest of their lives. So I think that probably the adult MacArthur's were a little bit disappointed that they'd brought out this top-shelf governess at enormous cost and inconvenience out from London and then she gets engaged. I'm sure they were annoyed. but Yeah, but love. Love. But love, love. hey? But love, love and, and a life being saved and that's... Very fairy tale, like all on its own, isn't it? It is indeed. Yes, there is this idea that is, is resounds through all your writing about folk tales and fairy tales. The idea is that there's the literal saving of a life, but then love saves us. Love saves our lives, doesn't it? That's such a big thing for you. It is. That's exactly right. You know, the redemptive power of love. I think the human longing to love and be loved is integral to most of us. And yeah. Charlotte certainly. I think that. James and Charlotte were very much in love. They moved to the Southern Highlands and they built this beautiful golden sandstone house, which is the one that we used to peer at through the rose briars when we were children. Oldbury. And is it still there today? <laughs> it's Oldbury, yes. It's, it's privately owned. It's the oldest example of domestic colonial architecture still in private hands. Most other houses like it have been turned into museums. So you think of Vaucluse House or Elizabeth House, they were built at the same time in the same manner. Oh, that beautiful, um, well, I suppose it's strictly speaking early Victorian, but Georgian style of architecture that is it's, really very remarkable, very, very beautiful. It is. It's, it's a perfect little Georgian gem, perfectly symmetrical in every way. So who was working the land on this farm that she was living at, Charlotte was living at with James, her husband? So the land was primarily worked by convicts, um, which was normal at the time. James was known for being a very just and fair man and he later became a magistrate and many of the convicts that worked with him loved him and he, he actually sponsored their families to come out from London. There were quite a few of his men whose family were starving in workhouses in London and James sponsored them, brought them out, set them up in cottages and they were able to begin a new life here in, in Australia. However, not all of the convicts were so grateful. Some were very brutal men. There was a lot of frontier-style violence. And what about the Aboriginal people who were the tr traditional owners of the land? Do they write about them? Are they a kind of a... Yes. As so often the case, there's a great silence that surrounds what happened to the Aboriginal people on those estates. What about in this case? That is exactly right. And, of course, the land grants that um, James Atkinson was given, 
was stolen land. It was land that was traditionally owned by the Wadi Wadi people. Again, we know that James was a very gentle and kind man. He actually wrote to the governor at one point protesting the treatment of the local Indigenous people and expressing his concern about how they were living and the fact that you know illnesses like smallpox had, had ravaged their numbers and his concern that they weren't being properly cared for or compensated for their loss. There was one Aboriginal elder called Iwambi, who actually saved James Atkinson's life. So he led James Atkinson through the wild gorges of the Shoalhaven River, searching for a way through to the coast. They were hoping they could build some kind of road. And they lost their way. And Iwambi found wild honey and killed a goanna. And he did not eat himself for four days. He gave all the food to James Atkinson and then led him back to safety. Thank God he had the good sense to eat the food as well because there were quite a few <laughs> of, the, uh, uh, of the newcomers that weren't prepared to eat goanna or wild honey. So, so at least he had the sense to do that. Well, James Atkinson and Charlotte were were fascinated by Indigenous culture. And in actual fact, we know that they were invited to attend private corroborees and things like that. We know that after James Atkinson died, the local people grieved for him deeply and they would not you know, permit his name to be spoken, which was part of their funeral rites. So he died? So yeah. he, James died? Did he die a young man? Yes, he was still a young man. He was only in his 30s. What did he die from? Well, we believe that he died of typhoid. All that we know is that he drank contaminated water and he died um, after a long and very painful illness. Charlotte had been pregnant with her fourth child and her her youngest daughter, who was Louisa Atkinson, the first Australian-born female novelist. Louisa Atkinson was born while James was ill and he died when she was only six weeks old. She thought that he never actually even saw her because Charlotte took the baby in to show James and he was so ill that he could not even see her or acknowledge her. So sad. So where, how did that leave Charlotte then, the, the death of her young husband, the man who had put the plaid coat around her shoulders, the man who'd yeah. saved her life aboard the ship? She's got how many kids and, and, and what kind of an estate? Well, she had four children under the age of eight and, and the youngest, as I've just said, was a newborn baby. She was left to try and manage quite vast estate without flung sheep stations. Um, much of it was still wild bush, you know, the area around Old Oldbury had been cleared. There was a little community at Sutton Forest and a little church there. In fact, um, James and Charlotte's son, James, John Atkinson, was the first child christened in the All Saints Church at Sutton yeah. Forest. But even so, her neighbours were quite some distance away. And did she know how to run a farm? Could she do it? Well, she'd been living there for quite a long time by that time, probably eight or nine years. But she had an overseer who managed the farm for her. His name was George Barton. And once he took care of the farm, did that then put it on an even keel for her? Was she able then to sustain that kind of a life? No, she absolutely was not. One day, about uh, ten years after she first arrived in Australia in, in, in 1836, Charlotte went riding out through the Belango Forest, which just gives you a shiver down your spine. Yes, with Ivan Milat connotations. So she went riding out through the Belango Forest with George Barton and they were accosted by bushrangers. The bushrangers said to 
George Barton, they ordered him to strip off his, his shirt and jacket and then they said to him that they were going to whip him, that they wanted to teach all gentlemen what it was like to be flogged. And then they gave him 30 strokes of a very heavy, what was called a bull whip, which is a heavy whip made of leather. 30 strokes? Yes. That would tear the flesh off his back. Absolutely. He was completely lacerated. And Charlotte tried to intervene and save her overseer, but they uh, could not be held back. One of the bush rangers was a man called John Lynch, who subsequently would be called the Berrima Axe Murderer. He was Australia's first serial murderer, and we know that he was later responsible for the death of many. We also know he raped a young, a young girl, a 14-year-old girl called Mary Mulligan, and then murdered her and her entire family. So he was a violent and dangerous man. We don't know what happened to Charlotte that day in the Belango Forest. She never spoke about it. She never wrote about it. We fear the worst, but we don't know. What we do know is that three weeks later, she married her overseer, George Barton. And this was one of the greatest mistakes of her life. He proved to be uh, a drunk and a violent husband. She suffered terribly for three and a half years. And then very early one morning, she packed up her four young children. She took what she could carry on the backs of a couple of bullocks and she rode off and she escaped Oldbury Farm. She rode down through the gorges of the Shoalhaven River and eventually she made it to Sydney. So she fled domestic violence and I fear she fled the horror of what happened to her that day in the Belango Forest. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Kate, what did that mean for her? How was she able to live in Sydney without the estate and the money it brought in? Well, she lost everything. She had lost her, her home. She had lost her children's inheritance. She had no source of income. She and her solicitor actually applied to the courts for an income from Oldbury and the solicitor wrote, she and her children are literally starving. Charlotte sold her belongings. She tried her best to look after her children. What, she sold her dresses and her jewellery? Exactly. They were desperately impoverished and Charlotte had no help, no support of any kind. When she applied to the courts to get an income from Oldbury, which was left in trust for her son, James John Atkinson, the trustees of the farm actually countered by saying that Charlotte was incapable of raising and looking after her own children in consequence of her imprudent marriage to George Barton, and they applied to the courts to have a male guardian take care of her children. They sought to take her children away from her. 
because they blamed her for the marriage to a, a violent drunkard? Well, we know the very first thing that Charlotte did when she arrived in Sydney was she applied to the police for protection against her ex-husband, the man that she had fled. Legally, though, she was still married to him. There was no real proviso for poor young women to divorce their abusers in those days. This was in the 1840s. And the trustees tried to have her children taken away from her. Well, Charlotte fought them. She went to court and she passionately argued that she was the best person to look after and raise her own children, that she had educated them, she had worked to feed them, she had looked after them. She would not allow them to either be taken away from her and sent to boarding school or taken away from her and given into the care of a guardian. The court actually wanted to apply a young man who was only 22 years old, who had only been in the colony for a couple of weeks and had never met the children. That was who they nominated to be the children's guardian. And Charlotte fought like a tigress. At one point, she was fined for her impertinence. And Alexander Berry, who was one of the trustees of the farm, he called her a notable she-dragon. <laughs> Right. I love that. Yeah. I want I, I want to be a notable she-dragon. <laughs> <laughs> so she'd gone from being a struggling governess to being a lady of grace and favour and, and then she had to throw that away and become a kind of a, a vociferous defender of the few things she had left, which were her children. Which were her children. So the court case dragged on and on and she fought it all the way up to the very top. She took it to the New South Wales Supreme Court and it came before Justice Dowling. And in July 1841, he found vehemently in favour of Charlotte. He said that the breakdown of the marriage was in no way her fault that in no way were the children disadvantaged because she was looking after them and educating them herself. And he said that nothing would induce him to take these four young children away from their mother. Now, this is a landmark case for women's rights in Australia. It's the first time an Australian court ever found in favour of the mother in a custody battle. But not only is that remarkable, it was only the third time in the history of British law that a woman was given custody of her own children. So she was allowed to keep her kids, but what could she feed them with? Where was she living? How was she living? And how was she getting any kind of income? That's a really, really good question. The trustees were ordered to pay her an income from the farm, but they were so angry about having been bested by a notable she-dragon that they actually did not pay her. She had very little income at all, only what she could sell of her belongings. So every night when she had been struggling all day, fighting for her children and for her own rights in the courts of the land, every night she went home and she gathered her four children around her and she told them stories. She created an enchanted circle of storytelling for them to teach them about the history and, ge and geography of this beautiful land in which they lived, to share her knowledge, to teach them through storytelling. And then after they were asleep or tucked up in bed, she wrote her stories down. And in December 1841, so only five months after she'd won her court case, her book was published, A Mother's Offering to Her Children. And that's exactly what it was. She wrote this book for her children, 
both materially and metaphorically. And the income that she earned from the sale of this book, which was a bestseller of the time, enabled her to support and look after her children till James John was old enough to inherit Old Bury. Did you feel her waving at you from the centuries? Did you feel her waving at you going, I'm over here, I'm doing what you do, you and your sister? Both my sister and I are, are writers and we are, are mothers and we are women and we know exactly the struggles that Charlotte went through, the struggle to find her own voice, to be permitted to tell her own story, the, the dreadful juggle of trying to look after your family, to keep them safe, to make sure that they are well and looked after while still struggling to have a creative life. The great difficulties of having to be strong for your children when really I'm sure there were many times when she just wanted to break down and cry but she couldn't because those four young children were dependent upon her. She not only had to feed them and look after them and find some way of earning a living when women were not really able to work very easily, she also had to teach them, homeschool them and As we know, their education levels were extraordinarily high because they were tested by the court. She wrote her book, A Mother's Offering to Her Children, under a pseudonym. It was a lady resident in New South Wales. Why? Why did she do that? There are a number of of different reasons why. You know, one is personal. The whole attack of the bushrangers had caused an enormous scandal. It was reported in the papers and it was that scandal which prompted Charlotte to marry George Barton, the overseer who had been flogged. Now, most people speculated what might have happened that day to her in the forest and that was an unspeakable act of the time. Then she fled her husband. She applied to the police for protection against him, very strong and unusual for one of her time to speak out against domestic violence. So there was all this notoriety around her name? There was all this notoriety around her name. And she just didn't want that to be associated with a nice children's book? No, she, well, no it, it wasn't that she didn't want it to be associated with a nice children's book. She didn't want her children to be damaged by this scandal and she didn't want her book, which she was writing in order to save her family from starvation, she didn't want people she refused to buy it because it was written by a scandalous woman. So she hid her, her real name under the pseudonym, a lady long resident in New South Wales. This was not at all unusual for the time. Jane Austen published anonymously as a lady. As you know, the Bronte sisters all published pseudonymously. George Eliot too. Yeah. George Eliot under the names of men because they thought that an authoress was unlikely to be taken seriously. Charlotte did not do that. She kept her gender but just hid her name. Most interestingly, Frankenstein, which was written by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, was given no attribution at all. But in Frankenstein, the story is all about men, but it composes a series of letters written to a woman called Mrs Savile who shared Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's initials, MWS, and Charlotte chose the same pseudonym for herself in the book. So the mother in the book is called Mrs Savile, which is the same name that Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley <laughs> called herself in her book. Wow. Mm. I can't imagine the delight you, you felt when you realised all that too. This is very appealing to... It's like it's something written to delight 
particularly to delight her great, 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 great granddaughter all these years later. That's exactly mm. right. You know, um, there were so many astonishing and interesting discoveries that, you know, my sister Belinda and I made along the way, and that was just one of them. Now, in all honesty, what's the book like? Is it a bit genteel and a bit old-fashioned? Is it is it any good, Kate, really? It depends, you know, what is good, Richard? This is a very subjective discussion. Is it genteel? It is absolutely genteel. Is it old-fashioned? Absolutely. In fact, um, a modern-day child would read a couple of pages of it and then toss it down and wander off board. Yeah, but is it charming? I mean, you can be genteel and charming. There, it, it has in, enormous charm in parts of it. So what Charlotte Waring Atkinson did is it isn't a story, it isn't a, a novel, it's an educational book that teaches through uh, a framing device of the conversations between a mother and her four children. And they will say things like, Oh, Mama, while we sit here and do our sewing, could you please enchant us with a little story? And then Mrs Savile says, plying her needle, Absolutely, my dear. What would you like me to talk to you about tonight? Oh, Mama, could you please tell us a little bit more about that shipwreck? And then we'll have like a passage which was a kind of reportage of a famous shipwreck. Let's say the famous story of Eliza Fraser, who was shipwrecked on the coast of far north Queensland. And the reportage is like a summary of newspaper reports and it's quite dry and didactic. But then you have the passages where Mrs Savile is talking to her four children and her own voice shines through and it's warm, it's lyrical, it's loving and it's full of charm and whimsy. And in actual fact, her voice is very distinctive. And so the contrast between the dry didactic reportage of facts and Charlotte's own voice is really, really interesting. Now, what Charlotte was doing, you must remember she was a proto-feminist. She was writing before the even concept of feminism had been invented. Well, I think Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley were both those feminists of that same era, weren't they? So well, the fact that she's she's touching on that, that there's the faintest reference there, absolutely. suggests that she might have been of the same mind. Exactly. So quite often when we examining the narratives of early women writers, we look for what is called... Um, being double-voiced, which is on the surface they are speaking the language of the patriarchy and so they frame themselves as being quite meek and, and biddable young women, but their ideas are subversive. Jane Austen is famous mm. for doing this. Oh, yes, yes. You know, so Jane Austen's laughing her head off at the, the men in her books very largely. Not all, not all of them, not Mr Knightley, not, not Mr... Well, even Mr Darcy's funny at times. She absolutely mm. is, and Charlotte does the same thing. And so, for example, in, in one chapter, her son Julius asks Mrs Savile, oh, you know, could you please teach us about geology? And... Mrs Savile replies, well, I'm just a mere woman and it's not my place to know about geology. And then she goes on and explains at great depth and with great technical knowledge how rocks are formed. So she was very much playing this game. She knew that her book was going to be read by the young ladies and gentlemen of the colony and she wanted it to sell well because she needed the money to feed her children. It's very clever and it's very subversive. Do, do first editions fetch a bit of money these days for this book? Oh, yes, absolutely. So I think the last time that one sold, it went for about $75,000. Good God. And there's only a few left. I think the National Library has two or three and the State Library 
um, Sydney, I think, has at least one or two as well. So with all that, did she ever get to return to that estate, that handsome house in Albury that you used to visit as a small girl? Absolutely. So she and the children were able to return there. George Barton ended up being charged with murder. He went mad. He, he was called a raving lunatic. He was charged with murder and found guilty of manslaughter and imprisoned. But that all happened later. Charlotte did return to Oldbury and in time her son, James John, who'd only been six when his father died, he inherited it when he was a young man. But, you know, the, the farm was in ruins. George Barton had run it into the ground. It was derelict and it was a great deal of, of work. It was, it, it was a sad loss to the family. In time, you know, Charlotte um, lived there for quite some time and then she and her youngest daughter, Louisa, actually uh, moved to the Blue Mountains and Charlotte ran a school up there. You know, she was a a famous educator of girls. And um, in time, Louisa wrote herself and at the age of 22 became the first Australian-born female novelist. How did she meet her end? Charlotte or... Charlotte. I'll tell you the story of both. So Charlotte lived to be a grand old lady, much loved. Her eldest daughter, Charlotte Elizabeth, who's my great-great-great-grandmother, eloped with a sexy Irish groom. Her other daughter, Emily, died young, very sadly, and Louisa in time died as well. Louisa had always had a weak heart, which is why she lived with her mother all those years. And Louisa married and had a little baby of her own who was called Louise, Louise Calvert. And when her daughter was only a few weeks old, Louisa's husband fell off his horse and the horse galloped home riderless. And Louisa saw the horse come galloping into the stable yard and she had a heart attack and dropped dead. And a few hours later, her husband limped home and found the baby screaming in the cradle and his wife lying dead on the floor. And so poor Louise Calvert never really knew her mother either. Now, when Oldbury was sold after the death of James John, Louise Calvert, who was then only 14 or 15 years old, was told that she could take whatever she could carry. So she walked five miles across the countryside She gathered up an armful of belongings and took them away across the landscape and everything else was burnt. And all the treasures that we have, the shipboard journal, the sketchbooks, the first editions, everything, all those treasures in the archives of the Mitchell Library and the National Library were saved by that one young woman, only 14 or 15 years old, that motherless child. And Charlotte herself, what became of her? You know, she, um, when she was an old, an old lady, she fell and she broke her leg and like many old ladies, she was unable to heal and she eventually died. But when Louisa died, this is actually a fascinating story, which you're going to love this. When Louisa died, um, there were quite a few articles about her because she was quite famous at the time. She'd written, you know, half a dozen books and she was the first female journalist of this country. She wrote a very popular column in the Sydney Herald. Called... So, her, so her profile and, uh, had eclipsed yeah. her mother's, I suppose. Oh, yes, yeah. because no-one knew about Charlotte. A mother's offering to her lady by a lady long resident in New South Wales. No-one knew about it. But there were a couple of references to articles or sermons written about Louisa after her death that say her mother was the author 
of several useful and entertaining works for children. And Belinda and I were in the National Library of Australia. We'd been there for days, up to our eyeballs in dusty archive boxes. We'd shared the boxes between us and whenever we found something interesting, we'd tell the other one. And Belinda read this little line out to me. Her mother was the author of several useful and entertaining works for children. We only know of one, a mother's offering. And then maybe an hour later she goes, oh, here's another reference to Charlotte writing more than one book. I go, that's interesting. What else could she have written? And I was working on the archive boxes of Marcy Muir, who is Charlotte's first biographer. And what do I find in it? Just as Belinda says this to me, this is Charlotte standing over my shoulder and pointing, I find a handwritten note from Marcy Muir that references what was simply written in pencil, P.P.'s Tales. And I thought, what is this P.P. Tales? Why has Marcy Muir, she doesn't mention this in, in her book. So I go off on this wild literary detection journey and I discover that one of the very first children's stories to reference Australia was published in a collection of stories and poems called Peter Prattle's Amusing and Instructive Tales <laughs> by Peter Prattle. And I thought, who the hell is Peter Prattle? So I, it's PP, PP Tales. And so I called up out of the archives of the Mitchell Library this Amusing and Instructive Tales by Peter Prattle's which includes a story called The Happy Grandmother and Her Grandchildren Who Went to Australia. <laughs> there she is. And there she is. Bingo. Exactly. She's Peter Prattle. She, I, I, I firmly believe so. I did a kind of, <laughs> uh, let's call it a linguistic forensic <laughs> examination of the text, which is, of course, what we do when we examine fairy tales, is we examine the text. And there was Charlotte... This book was published in 1832. Kate Forsyth, this is a bit of a dig at men. <laughs> Peter Prattle. <laughs> Not Peter Perfect. I think it was. she simply liked the alliteration. It was, a, it, it was actually a very common device at the time. Th- these were chapbooks. So they were published on quite cheap paper and they were hand-coloured by children who were, you know, being paid a penny for a year's work <laughs> in London. I've done a close analysis and I, I do firmly believe that Charlotte is the author of the Peter Prattle's Amusing Tales. So... <laughs> So this brings me to this question. This whole story brings me to this question, Kate. And it's to sort of bring together all the conversations I've had with you about the books you've written. You've been on this program probably more than any other author I've, I've interviewed, I think, talking about a whole range of different things, but mainly about stories and certain kinds of stories. So if I'm, if I'm looking back, there's the story, there's your life, writing dark fairy tales and the stories and then coming on and telling me the true stories behind them. There's the ordeal of your early childhood when you were little more than a toddler, when you were attacked by that, by that dog that left you in hospital for such a long time. And that's the connection that got you interested in these kind of fairy tales. Grimm's fairy tales was your consolation as you took mm. me in, in hospital for all those years. And then there's this, an ancestor who writes stories for children, who has this romantic and gothic life that brings her from... England to Australia. What's going on here, Kate? What's going on? What do you think about all this? There's all this connectivity. 
Do we all have this in our lives? Can we all see these links of connection to what we do now and what our ancestors have done if we're prepared to listen to them? Or is there just some other strange cosmic principle at work here in your, in your life and what you've chosen to do with your life? See, I believe that storytelling is a connective tissue that joins all humans. I believe that we are natural storytellers, all of us, and I think that stories connect us and make, help us make sense of the world. Um, you know, we know that uh, storytelling was invented when language was invented. We know that all creatures are quite capable of expressing their, their, their emotions and their needs through grunts and gesticulations. You only have to go to the zoo and watch chimpanzees and know that they communicate clearly with each other. But humans invented a complex and subtle language and we know that we did so a very, very long time ago. So why was language invented? Language was invented so that we could tell each other stories. And oral storytelling stretches back this enormous distance, back to our ancestors who crouched around a fire at night. Now, why do we tell stories? We tell stories to make sense of this mysterious universe in which we live. A chaotic universe. It's chaotic. We bring order and certainty into our lives. We teach and warn through storytelling and we enchant and entertain through storytelling. Mothers and fathers tell their children stories to explain the phenomenon of the world and to make them feel safe and loved. Storytelling is deeply encoded into our DNA and because I grew up in this family where storytelling, oral storytelling, was such an important part of my childhood and because I've always been drawn to understanding this long history of storytelling in, in humans, I think one of the reasons why I personally was so fascinated with the story of, of my ancestor was because it spoke to me so strongly about human struggle, about our, um, how the human spirit can endure and flourish even after going through periods of great terror and darkness. And this to me is the human story. This is its, its eros and thanatos, love and death, the great subject of storytelling since the dawn of time. This is Homer in practice. And I think the reason why Charlotte's story and my own personal story continue to resonate so strongly with other people is because it's a microcosm of their story. We all fear, we all struggle, we all have times where we fear that we've been broken and yet we continue to live and we continue to love this, I think, is the secret of storytelling, is the astonishing ability of the human spirit to survive. How wonderful to speak with you once again, Kate. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. It is always a joy. Kate Forsyth is the co-author with her sister, Belinda Morell, of Searching for Charlotte. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.